Hi, this is Tamson Granger. And this is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamson and Dan Read the Paper on Monday, July 26, 2021. And uh, we're a day late and a dollar short because we're on vacation. <laughs> dollar short? More than a dollar. I mean, <laughs> we are on vacation. We're, you know, we're not, we're not the same high metabolism, you know, sitting on the edge of the chair, top step of the dugout duo we normally are. We're more relaxed. Really? Top step of the dugout? That's a baseball, inside baseball term. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, we're uh, cooling it. You know, we're cooling out. We're uh, off the clock, as Tamsin likes to say. But yeah, here we are. Here yes, we are. Block because, Island. Because the public demands it. And we're in Block Island putting together our uh, mid-vacation Block Island podcast. Uh, and uh, Sadie's Well, you know what this what? is? The, the vacation, it really is a vacation for us. It really is Shavasana. It's like a pause. See, when you say Shavasana, it almost sounds Hebrew. Right? It's, that sounds good. But uh, pause. I, I don't even know how to say it correctly. I only know it how, how to say it Shavasana. from yeah. the yoga teachers at my gym. Okay. okay? They're probably it's, Jewish. You know, <laughs> and uh, it's, uh, you know, at the end of your yoga session, mm-hmm. you just lie down on the floor. It's the corpse pose. Really? You say namaste. At and, the end, right? uh, and I've actually read that it has some valid- validity, that you just stop everything, let your body soak in mm. what you've tried to teach it. Okay. And uh, they say that's what sleep does for your brain. Does that mean kind uh, of thing? So not, it's it's worth doing. Well, does that mean we're not doing the ocean swim this afternoon or not? No, it means that uh, vacation is a break ah. from your normal, normal life routine, to yes. give you a chance to kind of reset. That's fair. That's fair. And, okay, uh, we're do, resetting. You do what you do. You do what you do. You do you. And this is, uh, you know, especially weird this year because, as we mentioned last week, uh, we're all alone. Well, no. First of all, it's not fair. We've been abandoned. We were alone for the first few days, and I think we've rekindled our relationship. I won't say more than that. Uh, and then we had uh, your brother and Lorna visited. Bryce and Lorna visited. That was very nice. They were here for the weekend. Yes. Two or three days. He flew in. Uh, he's an intrepid uh, flyer of small airplanes. And uh, that's the way to go. That's one way to get in and get out, you know. Because Block Island is an island. It is an island. you got to come in. In the and, water, between a, Connecticut and Long Island. you got to take a ferry or an airplane, and he flies right. in. So uh, it's always fun spending a few days with Bryce and Lorna, which we did. And now we're visited by Sadie, who we've worn out already, so she's taken a rest. Uh, but, uh, so no, she's had it with us. Oh, I don't think, I think maybe with you, but yeah. What, uh, what child wants the full attention of both parents? All children. Uh, and especially all grandchildren. Anyway, uh, so here we are enjoying ourselves in Block Island. We're having a good time. Is that fair? Yes. It's an extraordinary natural setting. Yeah. And we've been coming here for a zillion years. Unfortunately, now it's become popular. Yeah. But we're, so we're, we're pretty it's much... more expensive, and oh, that's okay. uh, it's harder but, to get here. But we're away from but, the crowd. Uh, we're, we're in an isolated place. It's something we've been doing with uh, family and friends for probably 40 years. Yeah. So it means a lot to us. And we're in a rented house looking out on, on uh, the ocean from a high vantage point. And uh, it's very quiet up here. It's very nice. And it's beautiful. Idyllic. Idyllic. Uh, yes, it is. So uh, one thing that we have the opportunity of doing when we're uh, chilling out is we've caught some of the Olympics. I don't know if we would have made time to watch the Olympics in our normal, uh, everyday, hectic Hubbub. back and forth. That's right. But here we are, and there is a television set. And once in a while, between activities, 
we crash on the couch and we turn on the Olympics, which apparently is on almost every day. Uh, well, every day, every minute, actually, of every day. Well, we should mention yeah. that Block Island, one of the reasons it is a shavasana yeah. is there is virtually no internet. No internet. But the, right. And very little phone service. Yeah. You can drive to certain points on the island. And, uh, you know, you may get a couple of bars and you can make a phone call and do some texting. If you talk fast. But uh, right. we really are out of touch with the world, except uh, we happen to be getting some TV reception. And we get newspapers. Right. And newspapers. Right. And so uh, we've been checking in on the Olympics. Right. So, look, before the uh, Olympics, there were stories like uh, the one I have in front of me about uh, the Olympic beds being made out of cardboard, which I know that uh, Tamsin said she actually saw in the national news. That's a big story. And uh, the first issue was, how can you make beds out of cardboard? They're not going to be stable. Uh, and then the rumor was they were doing it to uh, sort of uh, discourage uh, any kind of intimate gatherings uh, on the bed because too much weight would not be supported by the bed. Well, it turns out uh, that's not the case because there was a YouTube video that circulated that showed that cardboard beds, this stunned me, are as sturdy as steel beds, which makes no sense whatsoever. But apparently it's true, right? Yes, we believe apparently. it. Apparently. It's saw true. the video. That's right. But, but this is not to say that the Olympic officials are not vigilant about couplings between athletes during these pandemic times. And... Uh, they're kind of a, caught in a tough spot on that. They give strong messages, and yet uh, they have to sort of follow through on other initiatives. And traditionally, at least the last few Olympics, they have passed out condoms at the Olympics to make sure athletes engage in safe sex as they're going to engage in sex. Uh, so what do they do this year? Well, it turns out they passed out condoms again, somewhat reluctantly, in somewhat lesser numbers, but they came with a message. These are not for use at the Olympics. These are for use when you return home. <laughs> so the, the thought being, of course, that many of the athletes come from countries which don't have condoms, and uh, their incentive really to be in the Olympics oh, was really? to, to get condoms. Oh, really? bring them back as souvenirs. Uh, give, them to, give them out to friends. Uh, I don't say, e by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Let me show you how this Since works. Since we're prepared. Exactly. Yeah, I, I don't know what the thinking is, but that's literally the message, that it's for use at home. Back mm -hmm. home. So anyway, there was that kind of story. And then there was also um, what seems to be, I think this something like this happened four years ago or five years ago. Um, there was the uh, Israeli baseball team, which is, seems to be almost a contradiction in terms uh, because there are only apparently a thousand people in Israel who play baseball. There are very few baseball fields. Land is kind of, sort of at a premium. It's not a big sport there. But it turns out it turns out that to qualify for uh, the Israeli baseball team, uh, all you have to do is to be an Israeli citizen. And to be an Israeli citizen, all you have to do is to be Jewish or to be married to someone who's Jewish uh, and, uh, you know, spell the word Jewish. It's really kind of it's it's, it's you don't even have to fill out a form. You have to fill out some forms and you have to. Uh, uh, oh, your mother's Jewish, one side's family Jewish. You have to have some link to Judaism. And then you have to go to Israel and fill out forms there. And then they give you dual citizenship and you're all set. Okay. All right. So this has worked sufficiently well for the Israeli baseball team. So it's, there are very, a number of Americans on the team who took these steps. And they took these steps because they were recruited. Now, 
you know, there, there's an article in the Times about the, uh, the coach and the general manager of the team did all this recruitment in the U.S. and tried to get uh, former major league players or former minor league players even to play for the Israeli team. And as he says here, uh, this is a fellow named Kurtz, he says, it's not difficult to find the Coens and the Levies, but try finding a Ty Kelly, who's one of their players. You know, that's, Kelly doesn't seem like a Jewish name. Mm-hmm. But in fact, uh, he's a guy who played for the Mets a few years ago uh, who has uh, a Jewish connection. And they did recruit Ty Kelly. He was a pretty decent player for the Mets for a couple of months. And he is a stalwart on the team. The, uh, their current star is a guy named Ian Kinsler, who was a star in the major leagues. Mm-hmm. And he's 39 years old. He just retired. He was four-time All-Star. Um, so he's the star of the team. And anyway, long story short, um, they're successful. Uh, and they have names like this guy named Valencia, had a Jewish well, how do you mother. Know they're successful? Well, they're successful because the Olympics just started. But there's a very limited field uh, to be in the uh, Olympic tournament. There are only eight teams, and that they're one of the top eight country slash teams of six teams. There are only six teams. So they qualify. They qualify, okay. which is against all odds. You know, because there's no real baseball going on there in Israel. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there are these middling players, and they're devoted to the cause. And uh, so we'll see. We'll see. We'll keep our eye on them. But anyway, we saw actual competition yesterday. And you you enjoyed that, didn't you? Yeah, I always enjoyed watching the Olympics. All right, you good. know, it's a little bit eerie without the uh, spectators. Yeah, it's totally eerie. And, uh, you know, um, some... Competitors are complaining about that. I Is that right? Yeah. I hadn't seen that. Yeah, because they don't... Uh, well, the uh, women's uh, gymnastics team yeah. lost to the Russians right. in the first round. Mm-hmm. And uh, Simone Biles was saying uh, she misses being able to look at... Well, I don't know if she was saying it, but uh, people were remarking that part of her ritual is to look up in the stands and see her parents... Before she performs, mm. and uh, I think we can get that's past not available that. to her. We can get past that, but uh, yeah. Anyway, it's kind of it's the same. Look, the Olympics are a combination of the compelling and the totally goofy. You know, with sports that you didn't know were sports, let alone that they were Olympic sports. But you can be, you know, I at least personally can be drawn into those sports in yeah. the same way. It's I can, fun. It's fun to learn about the sports. Right. It's fun to, you know, criticize the uniforms. Right. In the know, same way you can be drawn into Marvel any... at the abilities. Right. Or yeah. or the yeah, no, arbitrariness of the rules or the yeah. uh, the oddities that yeah. go with it. And, I mean, it's uh, been mystifying. We don't skateboard. No one in our families really? can... We don't? No, we don't. <laughs> no, of do course we? not. Right? Of course not. And uh, I don't know, you know, so we're... We're completely clueless. Well, you know, it's a, about skateboarding. skateboarding. So is, that's funny to watch because we have no idea what's going on. Skateboarding is the kind of thing you see, like, uh, oh, by a train station where they have some guardrails and some stairs right. or no, some public space. We've but, seen people do it. But here's what's we've funny. railed about people doing it. But here's what's funny about it. So you look at the official course yesterday, and it basically looks like Trump's train station with right. some guardrails and some stairs. They say this right. is what people do. This kind of thing. Yeah. And now we'll put some cameras in front of it. And they'll do it. Well, you know, I stayed up late uh, last night after you and Sadie uh, went to sleep. And I, I saw the big event, which was... Uh, swimming. Right, the swimming. Uh, well, I, I saw France beat uh, the U.S. in basketball. Yeah. Well, you know, I can tell you about that. And people are shocked about that. Yeah. I'm probably a little less shocked. Um, the reason that... Uh, there are a couple of reasons. There are many reasons, probably, why the U.S. lost. 
But um, one of the reasons is, or two of the reasons are, are this. Uh, first of all, they don't have a style of play that's going to make you consistently excellent because that's not the way the NBA is played anymore. It used to be you had a big man who was the center of attention for a lot of the time. And you can count on that person shooting 65% or something like that because he was going to take shots that were two feet from the basket. So if you add Shaquille O'Neal, you can count on him for 35 points, and the other countries can't do anything with that guy. They Mm -hmm. don't have that player anymore because the NBA doesn't play like that anymore. So it's a big – it's it's called – it's a make-or-miss league. So it's a high-reward, big risk league. So the next time they play France, they could win by 30. But it's more. But they are more often going to lose to France than they would previously because they're not as consistent. There's a wild fluctuation. If their shots are going in, they're going to win big, and if the shots are not going in, which can happen, they're going to lose. So there's that. Uh, there is, of course, the mundane reason that there are a lot of NBA players on different country teams, as there were in France, um, and including the Defensive Player of the Year in the NBA. Uh, but also. Um, Here's another funny thing they got to deal with. A lot of the players just arrived from the end of the playoffs. And, uh, for example, Drew Holiday shows up. He was on television in the NBA Finals three days ago before his team won. Okay? Mm-hmm. And now he's playing here. They put him on airplane and he's playing. And he's a good but not great player. But here's what's interesting about this. Uh, there are some great players on the uh, Olympic team. Kevin Durant would be the best example of a fantastic offensive player, fantastic shooter. All right? When you're play, coaching an NBA team, you can say, look, guys, you defer to Kevin Durant. He's our best shooter, and he gets all the shots, all right? Or right. most of them, or a lot of them, which is what the Nets did when they had injuries, and they had a bunch of lesser players playing to Kevin Durant, and they almost beat the Bucks. But when you're coaching the Olympic team, and Drew Holiday shows up, and he just won an NBA championship, it is very hard to say to Drew Holiday, Drew, thanks, I'm glad you're here. Don't take any shots, because <laughs> we have Kevin Durant. And... uh you saw a little bit of that yesterday, which is what you should say, by the way, mm-hmm. because Drew Holiday's a great defensive player and a good driver, but not a great outside shooter. But tell that to Drew Holiday, and so it's not the easiest team to coach. Uh, so in any event, uh, I think they'll still win the gold, but uh, they have some uh, challenges. Uh, so I watched the Katie Ledecky race. Everybody loves Katie Ledecky, and even I like Katie right. Ledecky. And you know, I'm hard to please. Uh, she's fantastic. She's won 15 gold medals or something. She got beat for the first time in the Olympics yesterday. Uh, she took a silver uh, to Ariana uh, Titmus uh, of Australia in the 400-meter freestyle. I mean, these girls really go at it. They really swim. But, you know, it's funny how you're reminded how little you know because you start watching the race. And you hear so much about Kitty Ledecky. She seems unbeatable. And the little profile I do about... This uh, Titmus girl has been training for years and years just to get within hailing distance mm-hmm. of Katie Ledecky. And, you you know, for the first 100 meters, 200 meters, 300 meters, Katie Ledecky's winning the race. Mm-hmm. And they get to the end of 300 meters and uh, Titmus is a length behind. And suddenly now she says, well, she's close enough now. I think Ledecky's kind of has no chance. And I'm going, what? <laughs> and sure enough, they were holding out on us. Yeah. Uh, Titmus takes the last 100 meters and goes by her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's a few years younger, whatever it is. Um, so in any event, so Taylor Ledecky came in second. It's not a disaster. She's got a couple of other competitions, and second's not so bad. But it was pretty interesting. And, uh, and of course, we're watching water polo with yeah. Sadie. Yeah. yeah. Yes, as very few people do. And we have lots of comments on that. From Sadie, yes. Yes, from Sadie. But from you, too. Yeah. Can you, I, you, you're the advantage I have the players. is that I don't Telling know what I'm talking about. Telling the players what to do. I don't as know. As if they were your kids. As if, 
<laughs> I never, I never told the kids what to do. And water polo. What do I know about oh, water really? polo? Yeah. Well, a, it's true you you don't know much about water polo, but it's not true that you didn't tell them what to do. Uh, only when I was asked. Okay, moving right along here. Speaking of uh, things international. Yeah. And uh, you know we have. Um, Hopefully, some international travel coming up in the fall. Right. Right. Where um, your nephew, Sean, mm -hmm. is going to get married in Italy mm -hmm. to Stephanie. And Luca. Luca. Mm -hmm. And uh, we want to be there. Right. And also, Sean's dad would like to be there. Right. And he needs to get a passport. And that's a problem. That may be a problem. Right. Apparently, um, passports... Uh, the passport office, or whatever it's called, is way, way, way behind right. in filling people's uh, passport uh, um, requests. And for one thing, they cut off uh, being able to schedule appointments online. Yeah. Because apparently third-party bots right. were claiming the spots and then selling, selling them. Right. People have companies that will sell you yeah. an you know, well, there's, there's a, a little, free online there's a spot little, for. I saw on TV today they were saying the spots go for up to a thousand dollars. Yeah, there's a little speculation, there, but yeah, this is the same kind of thing you see when Broadway tickets. There's the same idea. Yeah, right. But um, there's a way to deal with that. But, but well, let's what put is that the way to deal with? I, that? I I can't tell you. It's too detailed for me. But the, they certainly have confronted it for some time in, in the Broadway ticket area. Uh, mm -hmm. And there's a way to even. I think when you. See on the site, they ask you to see a diagram and indicate what you're seeing, X or Y. Right, yeah, that's capture. Yeah, yeah, so that's to prevent the bots. From they didn't know to use that? I don't know. Well, anyway, there have been a bunch of articles yeah. about the passport problem, Yeah. but nobody's really addressing the bot problem. Right. So I don't know if it really exists or not. But anyway, uh, needless to say, people are not getting their passports. People, you know, normal everyday people, I mean, uh, have saved up. For a trip to Costa Rica, yeah, and they can't get a passport right, to go right. there. It's yeah, it's no laughing matter, and uh, and so they're doing crazy things. Right. So the one way to get a passport in a hurry. Yeah. See, the problem is that usually you, you apply for a passport. Maybe it takes I don't know six to eight weeks. Right. Now it's taking eighteen weeks right. or more. And there used to be expedited uh, processes. Even those are taking way, way too long. Now. Yeah. yeah right. So um, that's not a help. But if you can prove you have tickets to go somewhere within the next 72 hours, yeah. um, you can get an, an emergency appointment. Right. Uh, in person, though. Yes, in person. Right. And, you have um, to fly so, somewhere to get there. Well, something. this is the thing. You, you, you have you. You have to call. They have shut down all online right. applications, right? Yeah. So you have to call up to get the appointment. And it's like, you know, being on the phone trying to get concert tickets or, mm -hmm. or something like that. So you're on redial, redial, redial. And people are finding, you know, that um, there are no appointments anywhere in the area. So people are flying from like Chicago to Seattle. Oh, God. To, um, you know, when they can get an appointment for like the next day. To get a passport. To get a passport. To take another trip. Yes. Mm. Okay. And so they're spending like $500 right. in flying an Uber right. to get to to yeah. the yeah, uh, yeah. office in Seattle and then come back to and Chicago this is, this is, and then go on their trip. Is, but some people aren't even, some people don't want to take that chance. 
It's like you're waiting. Yeah. You have to wait till 72 hours before right. your trip. And what if you not don't manage to get an appointment? Right. Or you get an appointment and you know it's too late, et cetera, and so forth. People are buying tickets for trips, like dummy tickets. Oh, so they can get up on the line. Oh, so yeah. that they can apply for it now. Yeah. You know, you and... That's a little, uh, that's a little like the bot when you think about well, it's it. Well, yeah, it's very expensive. Yeah. Uh, but uh, anyway, it's all a disaster. Um, and we hope things work out. Yeah, I, I don't know. You know, I'll tell you something. People, you know, people have been tied down, unable to travel. Right. They're dying to travel. Okay. And so there's been an incredible crush. Plus, the State Department had kind of shut down a right. lot of their passport services because everything shut down right. during COVID. Yeah, you know, I, so they're understaffed and they're completely you, overwhelmed. You're going to may think this is crazy, but this is what I think too. And this is everything always comes back to the pandemic and whatever. But stuff like this, uh, when the government can't function in the way the government should be able to function, diminishes people's confidence in the government's being able to function. Absolutely. Across the board. Absolutely. And so when people talk about why why is everyone not completely enthusiastic about the government's uh, vaccination program, you know something? Uh, stuff like this doesn't help. Obviously, right. we're vaccinated. Right. We believe in the vaccination. Right. That's not the point. But, you know, this is a huge fail, a huge fail on the part of the government. And believe me, it has a it has repercussions across the board. It shouldn't be that hard to fix. Right. And, uh, it, you know, it's been a while. Right. Um, so that's too bad. Yeah. So another uh, repercussion of... Uh, the pandemic. Pandemic. Yeah. Uh, is summer camp. Yeah. Okay. So summer camps, uh, you know, people have fond memories of summer camp, sure. having great times. Also, summer camps can be essential... Uh, for parents who have to go back to work, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, it's one way um, to uh, keep your kids busy during the summer. Because of staffing problems, etc., cetera, uh, summer camps are shutting down. Yeah, some of them. Yeah, uh, right. Yeah. yeah, and they're having huge problems. People are going through, uh, you know, as I said, staffing. Staffing has been a problem from the get-go yeah. for these camps. Right. They've, they've been trying to hire people right. and young people to be the counselors. Right. And uh, they've had, you know, a tremendous difficulty. Right. They're trying to hire many more than they need because one camp they cite that uh, they had hired 60 counselors. 36 actually showed up right. on the day of. Okay. Plus, they have people just uh, not, um, you know, uh, just leaving mid-season. Right. They have, there's a, a problem. There are fewer people available, again, because of that uh, temporary visa right. thing, the J21 or whatever it is, yeah, right, right. where you usually have a temporary people, visa for right. um, uh, people from abroad. overseas. Mm -hmm. So there's, those people aren't available. Uh, so there's... and. And people and young people are saying, look, uh, you get $2,000 for the whole summer when um, Target and McDonald's are, you know, paying minimum wage. Well, they're paying $20 an hour. Or, so, or, or, so they're or going more. To... Yeah. So um, it's, you know, it's really sad and awful. And, and a lot of these uh, camps are just having to shut down and send people well, back the, the, and the, call the, up the parents and say, get up here by tomorrow and right. pick up your kids. See, that's the craziest thing. There's one or two examples of the camp telling people in advance he's not going to be able to go forward. 
But there are a couple of stark examples of the camp actually commencing, people going to these remote locations, or at least up to the Catskills. And then two weeks later, they get the call that you're just describing from the camp saying, you know something, we can't do it after all. Pick up your kids. Yeah. The other problem has been supplies. Yes, but that's not – according to the article, the camps blame the, you know, their issues on supplies, and the suppliers say we're just like 24 hours late. That's not it. So I don't know if it's really the supplies. Well, it, it's uh, It's personnel, sad. primarily. You know, we're, we're trying to get back to normal, right. but uh, who knows, again, what is the new normal going to be? Well, you could see the camp – they had one article uh, about you know, they're so desperate in terms of recruiting, they end up flying this young fellow in who told them that he's, he wants to spend time studying for a graduate course, even while he's working as a counselor. And he also will have to bring with him his emotional support cat uh, while he's out there being a counselor. And it turns out that guy didn't work out. No kidding. <laughs> I mean, you know, he's going to have to manage all well, these young you kids. Get you get desperate. I, I, but I understand. To... I understand. But it, 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 is, it basically is symptomatic of the situation that they're in. And they're not, in a, not positioned to pay top dollar for, well, look, the the programs scramble the economy a little bit, the uh, government programs, because they change the incentives, they change the salaries, and not every industry is benefiting in the same way, and as a result, those industries are falling behind, the camp industry being an example. Right, like the uh, theater yeah. industry. So, right. So, you know, it's... Because, yeah, the problem with the camp job is it's a 24-hour job. Oh, no, it's a challenging job. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, you know, and the other thing is one of the reasons uh, camp counselors were uh, unhappy. And you've been a camp counselor. I've been a camp right, counselor. Right, right. And, for years. Uh, and um, you know, one of the things you live for is your time off. Mm-hmm. And it, one of the counselors has a car, yeah. or you manage to get some kind of ride to town. Can, don't tell uh, us any know. salacious stories no, 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 about but your time off. But the point is, but... you get off campus. Right. You get. You know, I remember. Away from the I, job. We would go to a small right? town and uh, go to a luncheonette. At a lot of these camps, you can't leave because of the COVID oh, that right? restrictions. Oh, God. Okay. And they don't, uh, um, you know, want you out with the potential for getting right. infected, having, you know, being in a larger circle, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So um, these counselors are stuck there yeah. 24-7. And, uh, you know, you can see them getting a bit frustrated, but... It's a mess. All right. Well, the other thing that that captured my attention over the past week or so was the uh, Bezos uh, space uh, trip. I guess his passport was up to date. Uh, well, yes, I guess that's right. I guess it's right. So he has a company, Amazon has a company, or he has a company called Blue Origin, which is probably a sister company to Amazon, or I think it's owned primarily by him. And they're now getting into space travel. And what's interesting is I had fallen behind here. I didn't realize how much space travel was now a private uh, sponsor services had really made it their mark in terms of space travel. And the Times, the Times gives a funny description of this situation. There's over a few articles. But first thing, here's the way the Times describes the way the space uh, race began. I'm just going to read a sentence, which is the, one of the strangest sentences I've ever read in the New York Times. The first space race which stretched the length of the 60s and ran out of steam in the 70s, pitted a, pitted a brash, can-do United States government against the malevolent and charmless Soviet Union. <laughs> and I'm saying to myself, what? Is that like a news article? Or is that like a paragraph from a James Bond novel? I mean, 
I mean, talk about and charmless. Charmless. I mean, malevolent. Okay, charmless. I mean, wow. All right. So uh, (laughs) that's why. That's why uh, we have feuds with the Russians, right? Because they're charmless. They're charmless. Yeah. Well, it's even deeper than that. I mean, we can forgive a lot of things they do, but if you're going to do it without any charm whatsoever, then how can we possibly put up with it? So. now we know we're in good hands when the Times writes a sentence like that in a news article. Uh, and so, great. So, but then they're writing about what's going on with space. And, and you have three folks here, right? You have Richard Branson, you have Elon Musk, and you have uh, Jeff Bezos. And they both made their mark in space in one way or another. And I'm saying to myself, okay, uh, who's doing what? It turns out that Richard Branson's doing kind of nothing. I mean, his, his, he got his group together and they shot something up in the air and he came down and that's that. But... Uh, Bezos uh, is serious about doing something with Blue Origin. Uh, and Bezos apparently is inspired, this is what he says, or this is what his folks say, by a professor in Princeton in the 70s named Gerard O'Neill, who I was not familiar with, and I don't think you were, who proposed a giant cylinder-shaped space colony. Uh, that might exist in great enough numbers to support far more people in industry than are now possible on Earth. Okay. Space colonization, which Bezos apparently has paid some serious attention to, and he is, you know, long, long-range plans in terms of heading in that direction. I don't know how real that is. Um, and they are moving into areas like working with NASA slowly, uh, but they do have some contracts with NASA, and they do some serious stuff. Uh, SpaceX is the company that Elon Musk has. And he has his own vision. He doesn't believe in space colonies. He believes in Mars. His thought is that we can actually settle on Mars, and he's trying to develop a program that ultimately will result in colonization of Mars. But in the meantime, actually, SpaceX is the leader of these three companies uh, by far. And and SpaceX is doing quite a bit with, with NASA. It's already, according to the Times, a behemoth in the space business. It regularly takes NASA astronauts and cargo to the International Space Station. It has deployed more than 1,500 satellites in the Starlink constellation to provide internet service everywhere and is developing a gargantuan rocket called Starship for missions for Mars and elsewhere. So Musk is serious about this, and he's way ahead of the others. Uh, so that's a serious business. So that's interesting. I had no idea. Uh, the other thing that came out of um, the Blue Origin uh, trip for Jeff Bezos was a lot of people don't like Bezos. Uh, <laughs> and um, I have to say, there was an article literally in the Times under a Reporter's Notebook, it's called, uh, just the other day, with a picture of uh, Jeff Bezos jogging in his Blue Origin rocket pad uh, and his little uh, hat, cowboy-like hat. Um, rocket and- suit? Yeah, and he looks a little like a goofball, but, yeah. uh, you know, who doesn't look like a goofball? Well, this was in the suit? style section. In the style section. And the Times calls him out. They said there's a word now, which is, it's like calling yourself a dweeb. You call yourself a Bezos. And that means someone who has, kind of looks terribly awkward and goofy and uncool no matter what he does. He's the object of derision. Uh, and uh, and there's also there were articles that were more serious, just criticizing Bezos for taking the money and doing this. And here's what I think about Bezos. Okay, what? I agree. He looks terrible in the hat. He looks like a goofball. I a think lot. if you're a billionaire, yeah, you, you don't wear anything you that's want. That's the point. I don't think he cares, and I don't think he cares. And I like that. In other words, when he he went up and he came down and he says, "Well, I'd like to thank 
everyone aboard Amazon products and all my employees for getting me the money that I can do this. I mean, that's a real, you know, screw you. You know, I'm on my own thing. I don't care what everybody thinks. I'm doing this. And he's sitting there during the interview with the cowboy hat looking as goofy as a man could possibly goof. And he knows it and he doesn't care. And I think that's great. Okay. I think that's fantastic. All right. So uh, Times doesn't look. Duly because, noted. Yes. So uh, more to look forward to. Uh, adventures in space. So how do you feel about foie gras? Uh, you know, after reading that article, I don't feel the same way. I don't feel the same way. I feel un- unsettled. Well, you know it's outlawed in New York. I didn't know that. and I, I, think I, I we, mean, it sounds like, I feel like we've I, been it sounds like you can eat it now, but um, starting next year. Oh, is that it? It said uh, it's not like we have it all 2019 the New York City passed legislation that would ban the sale of foie gras. You used to sell it. In I the mean, city. Yeah, right. Uh, one of the largest markets in the United States starting next year. Well, it's, it's joining inhu- California. It's, Apparently, well, you can't get so foie gras, it's which means fat liver. Right. <laughs> um, is uh, a um, goose liver, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, it's um, well, duck or goose liver, I guess. R- right. And uh, it's because it's uh, a delicacy. I never sold foie gras. You say no, I sold D'Artagnan foie? didn't sell foie gras? No, they, they were products that would have um, maybe some foie gras in it. Oh, okay. But uh, no, that's that's far too uh, rich for my blood. Yes, in many um, ways. Yeah, I, I was not Literally that, to figure I was not that fancy. Yeah. We're okay. going to talk about truffles in a minute. I didn't sell truffles either, but I sold, you know, pate with truffle truffles in it okay. kind of thing. Okay. Right. Anyway, so foie gras is a delicacy, and it's a duck or goose liver, um, and uh, it's, uh, you know, quite delicious uh, to many people, and it's a tradition for Christmas, etc. Mm. and so forth. But the objection is that in order to create this fabulous, huge liver, um, companies force feed yeah. uh, the animals. Right. And then kill them. Right. Uh, and this comes from nature. Right. Okay. It used to happen by itself. Right. Because uh, the um, the birds would stuff themselves, which mm-hmm. would swell their livers. And the whole idea was to um, prepare for their uh, flight mm-hmm. on the winter mm-hmm. migration or whatever. Right. Okay. So it's just... Uh, and, there, and there are farmers who raise... The birds that way, mm-hmm. you know, it's not a matter of tubes mm-hmm. uh, and cages, etc., and so forth. But uh, there, are, I, the problem is that the large producers uh, do it via pretty horrific conditions. So, what to do? A company, a startup in Paris, uh, Gourmet, G O U R M E Y, uh, has started um, making. I guess how how do you describe this? Um, it's it's uh, cell generated uh, foie gras. Yeah, producing foie gras from cultivated cells. Right. Uh, themselves, so they're so growing like the, foie gras. They're cloning foie gras without, cells yeah. without the bird. Yeah, you're going to see more of that. Okay, yeah. and so uh, article in the New York Times asking chefs, uh, would you eat it, etc. and so forth? Would you use it? Mm-hmm. Uh, most of them seem skeptical. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, the biggest problem is economic Mm -hmm. because right now, uh, 
it costs, you, you know, you can buy foie gras for about one to 200 euros a kilogram. Okay. All right. As opposed to, it takes about a thousand euros a kilogram to grow it. So it's not economical That may change. But I should point out that uh, if you're interested in the tradition of foie gras, um, uh, which, uh, you know, um, I'm not so interested in, but it was uh, the central theme of one of the books I've been reading this summer. Oh, really? Yes, by Martin Walker. And he's the guy who's writing the... um, uh, detective novels that take place mm-hmm. in France. Right. Detective Bruno Correge. Mm-hmm. And so they have a, a scandal about some uh, people who are protesting the mm-hmm. foie gras. Mm-hmm. Um, farmers who are um, uh-huh. doing that. And uh, the name of that uh, novel was The Crowded Grave. And so okay. um, that, was, that was kind of fun. And another Martin Walker... Uh, detective or police crime novel I was reading called Black Diamond was all about the truffle scandals in the truffle industry. Mm -hmm. Okay. Which uh, made drama drew my attention to a new movie that just came out. Mm -hmm. You know, this movie called pig. No. Okay. So, uh, there's a movie uh, just came out starring Nicolas Cage. Oh, really? Adam Arkin is also in it. All right. It's made as a directorial um, debut of a man named Paul. Oh, Michael Sarnowski. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, it's about Nicolas Cage plays a prominent Portland chef named Robin Feld who left the city's high-end restaurant scene to live in the Oregon wilderness where he forages for truffles with his beloved pig. Hmm. Okay. okay. So, oddly, it takes place in Oregon, but apparently Oregon has a thriving uh, truffle industry going on. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's supposed to be kind of a thriller, right? All right. We'll and, have to look uh, for it. His, um, so, uh, Cage's pig gets stolen. Now... I mean, it's, uh, you know, truffles grow like at the base of trees. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of a romantic uh, vision of pigs with their snouts mm-hmm. digging up the truffles, mm-hmm. right? And uh, there's one problem with pigs digging up truffles. Yeah. They want to eat them. Oh. Ter- the females are the ones who dig them up. Right. Okay. Because they are attracted to the truffle smell similar to the mating pheromones of male pigs. But because they eat them, it's not the greatest thing. You could stop that by just putting uh, a muzzle on uh, the pig's snout. But they've been outlawed in most places, and dogs are used. What's outlawed? Using pigs? The use of pigs. Why? Um, because they really they cause too much damage oh. in the fragile fungal well, structures also, of the soil. There's a pig waste situation that we don't want to get into, but uh, that's a problem I mean, with pigs. Yeah. And I mean, you know, in the so in the truffle yeah. in the uh, truffle scandal Black Diamond novel that I read. Yeah. All right. Uh, the characters claim that uh, the other problem with pigs is well, 
the opportunity with dogs hunting truffles is you can train them not to, uh, them, not right. to eat, you know, and, uh, and, you know, handle the truffles more gently. And you don't want to dig all the truffles up because if you leave them to a certain extent, more yeah. will grow. Right. And you can train the dogs to remember where they found those truffles and come back again. Uh, pigs are pretty smart generally. You're looking at so me you like could a, probably train. Like I, know. I don't know. Uh, maybe, maybe they're just too destructive. But so anyway, um, the reporters asked Sarnofsky, "Well, if no one uses pigs for digging truffles anymore, for right. hunting truffles, why did you do? The, why did you choose to use pigs?" And he said, "Well, they're just kind of cuter <laughs> and, and more more fun, more engaging yeah. uh, to have in a movie." But they did lots of research and they ate all kinds of you know truffle dishes in Oregon because they wanted the, you know, the things in their movie, the dishes in their movie to reflect reality, that it would be a better movie. Actually, the movie gets pretty good reviews. I know. It opened already? Yeah. Oh, okay. It opened a couple of weeks ago. Um, so we might want to see it. Cool. And, and they said, you know, I mean, even Cage. I mean, Cage can be weird, right? Yeah. But he's um, supposed to be interesting in it. All right. All right, so I like Anna Morkin. Um, all right, finally, Jackie Mason passed away, uh, and it's kind of funny. I mean, even his age seems unclear. They said in television today he died at ninety-three, and the paper is ninety, um, but that's not too important. So Jackie Mason, of course, was the uh, stand-up comedian, uh, very much uh, ethnic Jewish comedian, uh, who you know from another generation. Uh, who uh, had a very thick Eastern European accent, thick Jewish accent, you know, I think fairly described as a little old-fashioned in his delivery, and uh, who found some success, uh, particularly in Broadway shows, uh, very late in his career, some, you know, close into the uh, late 80s, 90s, whatever, around 2000, uh, when he was older by then, but that's when he had his most success. I mean, as he, as he mentions here in, in the interview for his obituary, I mean, the thought was that, you know, he made a huge comeback, and he said, actually, thank God I stunk for such a long time I was invisible so I could be discovered. I mean, he was very up and down in his career. I remember seeing him on the Ed Sullivan show years ago. I mean, his, his jokes... I don't remember him at all. Yeah. His jokes were like, uh, here's a good one, you know, music in elevators. He said, I live on the first floor. How much music can I hear by the time I get there? The guy on the 28th floor, let him pay for it. You know, that was that's his kind of joke. Hilarious. Yeah. All right. But, so, but he started out as a rabbi. Yes. Well, that he comes me, from a long line of oh, rabbis. Right. So he actually... Which, which makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Rabbis are speakers. Yeah, right? but it's not like... Storytellers. It's not a story where he was... He actually had a congregation. But it's not like he was, you know, a rabbi at a congregation. People said, you know, Jackie, you're so funny. You should actually, it's not that. He, because his family, you know, generations of rabbis, he had no choice. And he knew he had no choice. And, you know, he studied and he got a degree and he got certification and he had a congregation. And it wasn't until his father passed away that he said, okay, now I don't have to do this anymore. And I can, you know, I can step out because my father would have never allowed it and it would have broken his heart. And that's when he started his career. And he said even then, he felt tremendous guilt, so much guilt that he went into psychoanalysis for years, which he says was great, uh, you know, uh, material for his comedy in the future. But uh, he, he wasn't suited to be a rabbi, honestly. And um, 
he was uh, funny. I mean, I could do... It's not clear he was suited to be a comedian, either. Oh, yes, he was. Oh, uh, come on. Jackie Mason was extremely funny, okay? Extremely funny. He was... He was but a, if he was extremely funny, why didn't he have success before his com- well, so-called he, he has a theory, okay? He has yeah. a theory, and he said, you know something? Uh, he couldn't break into the nightclub circuit, and he said, this is the reason. Uh, in New York, he said, you know, you have a large Jewish audience... But he said because his act made Jewish audiences uncomfortable, he couldn't succeed. My accent, Mason said, reminds the audience of the background they're trying to forget. The Jewish audience that would find him funny was really trying to get past that. And so and why does that work? Because by the time now by the time he was doing it twenty, thirty years later, people were comfortable. They were comfortable that they had assimilated to a certain degree, they had reached a certain station in life. And now they could look back and listen to the old-time jokes with the old-time Jewish humor and laugh without any concern that they were exposing themselves as unsophisticated. That's, I think, the, the reason. Look, I, you know, funny is funny. Not funny is not funny. I mean, you, you – and it's well, a lot of I wouldn't taste. have found him – I don't remember him from uh, Ed Sullivan. Sullivan. Okay. Um, and I do remember certain, uh, you know, typical Jewish comics like Alan King. Yeah. Uh, et cetera. And, and – Found them funny, yeah. But but it's possible that uh, um, Jackie Mason's humor was too contextual. If you're not from the New York area, you yeah. don't get it. it Later, be. as your world expands and yeah. we've all become more cosmopolitan, yeah. um, maybe you know that everything became well, funnier to more people. It could be. I mean, look, Jackie Mason was more Rodney Dangerfield than Alan King. Alan King used to talk as if he were brought up in England. He had a very slow way of talking, enunciated very, very carefully. And it was part because of what we're talking about here. He, he, didn't, he didn't want to have anything that had the old shtetl, the old Yiddish accent. That was something people wanted to be away from. And yet he was funny in a way that was reminiscent of the themes that were talked about in the past. Uh, but Jackie Mason was old-time, uh, you know, uh, very Jewish humor. And so, so was Dangerfield. So, you know, uh, funny is funny. What can I say? And, and and as you said, they had some tribute on um, or faux tribute on television, which they they displayed some Twitter account lines. And you, you told me about the one from Jason Alexander, what she says, look, I took my parents to see Jackie Mason on Broadway. They never laughed so loud in their entire lives. Not my taste. OK. <laughs> and, and I will tell you, I like Jason Alexander. Jackie Mason, 10 times funnier than Jason Alexander and 10 times funnier than Jerry, Jerry Seinfeld. But but, you know. A matter of taste. Okay, so that's all we have. Yeah, let's go back to the beach. Yes, that's exactly what we're going to do. Uh, and then next time uh, you'll hear from us, we'll be on the mainland. Can you imagine oh, us back on the mainland? Crossed. <laughs> fingers crossed. Fingers <laughs> crossed. You never know about that ferry. Yeah. But anyway, this is Tamsin Granger. And Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan read the paper. We'll, we'll see ya. <laughs>